how can circular approaches create value for communities and give back to nature? Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet and profit. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our fortnightly edition of Circular Insights. Welcome back. It's episode 72. It's nearly Valentine's Day and the sun is shining, though it was several degrees below zero this morning, which seems appropriate for today's guest. Gavin Fernie-Jones is building an amazing social enterprise to create a circular economy for outdoor gear and ski wear. Living in the Alps, Gavin has seen for himself the impact global warming has had in the mountains he calls home. He's always loved the outdoors, having grown up living in an outdoor centre. But it was while running his boot fitting business, the Boot Lab, that he realised the impact his business was having on the environment. Gavin started making small changes to the way that business operated. And seeing the results of this inspired him to start a social enterprise called One Tree at a Time. One Tree at a Time is embedding circular approaches to change behaviours, build community and protect the mountain environment. The One Tree team has tapped into some surprising sources of waste to create value for local people and help build and strengthen local connections. On top of that, One Tree at a Time supports businesses and individuals to change behaviour and protect the mountain environment. I'll catch up with you after we meet Gavin to share my reflections on the conversation. So, Gavin, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Hi, Catherine. Uh, thanks for having us on. Yeah, and you're talking to us today from Courchevel in the French Alps. Hopefully you've got nice autumn weather like we have in the UK. But st- can you start off by telling us a bit about One Tree at a Time? When did it start? How did you get it going? Um, what's it all about? Yeah, cool. Um, so One Tree at a Time is an environmental uh, not-for-profit that we've set up operating in it. It's actually operating in a small village called Bozelle, um, which is just on the, the doorstep of the Trois Valley, which is the biggest uh, ski resort in the world. Uh, and we we sort of noticed a few years ago that we had a hell of a lot of waste in our industry. It's a very wasteful sports game. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of excess, especially in a resort like Courchevel. Uh, and we started to work with local businesses and our local community to see how we could um, help them to manage this waste and also cut waste out of their their revenue streams. Um, so we offered a pledge system to start with, um, and then that's evolved from there on until we now own a community space, which is really focused on circular models and recycling and repurposing ski gear. Mm. And when we're talking about waste, that's primarily what you're focused on, isn't it? The ski gear and... Um particularly some of the ski gear that comes from the instructors who are quite often given, um, you know, lots of nice new kit every season. So t- tell us a bit more about the kind of things that, that come in as 
Um, you know, waste in one sense, but um, still got plenty of life in them. Yeah, yeah sure. It's what waste of this product is almost a strange term to me because um, it shouldn't be waste because it's a really hard, hard wearing, well made fabric in general that's used in, in ski gear. We do we do ski gear, but we also do ski equipment, so ski boots and uh, skis. Again, even even harder, harder wearing materials and a lot of value in them. Um, and currently this product is just, it's getting chucked into landfill or it's getting sent abroad to be incinerated and burnt. Um, and we just have a huge, huge excess of it in not just our community, but across the outdoor industry. Um, and we found this out firstly by running a fix it day up in resort. So, I actually have another business, which is a, a ski boot fitters. And we decided that we would run a day outside that store and sell gear um, to fund tree planting. We'd sell secondhand gear and we'd do fix and repair. And a bit like the the, the Patagonia worn wear tour, which mm. I'm sure you've, you've heard of. Um, sim similar idea to that. And we actually did it on the first Brexit day, um, which was never <laughs> actually Brexit day. <laughs> it was one of many. And we sort of did it in our local resort because we wanted to do something positive on that day. Um, there wasn't going to be loads of guests in the resort because people thought flights wouldn't wouldn't be flying, so people didn't come out. Uh, so we did this day, and we just got swamped with clothing. Uh, we, we couldn't believe it. Um, we sold this clothing, and we used all the funds to plant trees. We actually raised 9,000 euros on the day. Wow. Um, which sort of says two things. It says our community is really given and is interested in the subject, but also that our community has far too much clothing um, and far too much product. Uh, and then from there, we just carried on forward, really. And we sort of noticed that there was a lot of kit coming from ski instructors um, and, and sort of sponsored athletes and professionals. So I think <laughs> A purpose for a sponsored athlete, for example, is to wear that season's clothing, that season's ski gear, um, to promote it in videos and photos, and then for that company to be able to sell more of that product. It's kind of almost the same for a ski school. Um, the brands want the ski schools to be skiing in the latest kit, and for then their customers to see, for example, an instructor might be skiing in a North Face jacket, and their customers then might go away. Um, the ski school customers might go away and buy a North Face jacket. Mm. And so these type of people have a lot, a lot of excess. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not just because the brands are demanding that they wear um, a different color each year. The brands are, you know, they, 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 the ski scores aren't necessarily the problem, but they have a problem in the fact that the brands make a new color each year. So you won't get the same. You say now a uniform's blue, they won't get a blue the following year. So if an item's damaged by one ski instructor, they can't replace that blue garment easily. Um, and then ski instructors do 120 days on, on a mountain. It's not sunny all the time. It does rain um, more often now than it used to. <laughs> uh, so they do need a product that's gonna be safe to use on, on a mountain landscape when they're leading groups. Um, but that doesn't mean that that product isn't still of, of real value to somebody else. So we found that for me, for example, um, I work a lot in resort. Um, I don't ski as much as I used to. 
and if it's raining, I probably wouldn't go skiing. So a garment like that for me is perfect because I would go out skiing in the sunshine, for example. And if it's lost a little bit of its waterproofness, I can re-waterproof it, but if it's lost a little bit of its performance, it's not, it's not the end of the world. Uh, so we found an avenue for uh, collecting gear and it came from sort of ski instructors and professionals. When this stuff comes to us though, it's logoed up. So it's carrying the ski school's logo. Um, and the ski school has a problem then because they don't want that garment on the mountain um, because someone might not ski very well wearing that garment. They might be doing something dangerous. Um, and so what we started to do is patch over these, these logos, uh, re-waterproof the, the garment on the inside so that we re-waterproof the stitching uh, and then sell it to fund our community space that we're running out here. And then it just kept exploding from there. We've now received loads and loads of garments from different types of companies. Uh, they're not just ski instructors. We get them from Shally companies. Um, an example, another one that I've just received recently is fleeces that were made for a Shally company. The, the Shally companies had these fleeces made and logoed up. Um, and they're quite a high-end Shally company, and these fleeces don't look very high-end. Like, it's bad ordering. Um, it's not the right product for them. So these fleeces weren't really worn by their staff. So we've got a box and boxes of these logoed up fleeces. They've been sat in storerooms now for five years longer. Um, and we've taken those, we've patched over them. We've donated about half of them towards, um, refugee charities that are operating around here in the French Alps. Um, there's a really good organization called Riders for Refugees that is collecting warm winter clothing. So we donated a, a substantial amount to those. Uh, and then we logoed up the rest and we sell them through the store. Mm. So there's a strong element of trust, isn't there, between the donators and you. They they need to know that you are going to remove their logo and, um, you know, that they're not going to either lose their reputation because somebody's, um, you know, not adhering to their brand values in, in the logo clothing or, or worse, that they're breaking some terms of the clothing company that's given them the kit in the first place so that's that's important so there's the the um the donated clothing and then also i think you do um you're working on repairs as well with repair services and repair classes yeah yeah um so we've been using the funds and reinvesting them straight back in our community so any money that's been raised well a portion still goes to tree planting, which we do through an organization called Trees for the Future. Um, I don't know if you've heard of them, but they are cited by the UN um, as the perfect way we should plant trees. Um, they, they create these forest gardens in Africa, so they work with a community for four years um, to take a, a sort of monocrop parcel of land and turn it into um, a, a land that has trees, but also that they can grow and grow crops on they increase their yield by about 400 percent in four years so that's what we use to do mm. tree planting so like a um, the rest of the money uh we use to invest straight back into the community so we've got some communal sewing machines in the space um we want we run workshops the workshops are all pay as you feel workshops so you know if you can't afford to pay for the workshop that's not a problem if you can afford to then that's great that can keep going back into the kitty uh, and we've actually now been able to employ um, three or four different seamstresses now um, on part-time. Well, some of them working nearly full-time at the minute, but sort of part-time, full-time, um, repairing clothing. Yeah, like you say, we, we used to actually have in the very village that we were operating in, 
opposite us, we had a seamstress. Um, I don't know how long she'd been there for years, but she closed down two years ago um, just because she wasn't making enough money to operate. Um, so we've kind of filled that void a little bit as well. So we're able to, well, it's kind of able to use the funds that we're receiving from the businesses, from the local community, um, to plow back into the community and provide services that, that are needed on our high street, really. Mm, that sounds good. And maybe I could post you one of, one of the, um, I've got a um, zip repair to do and uh, I thought it was going to be easy and it looks like the, the uh, you know, it's a sweater and it looks yeah. like the bottom of the zip is kind of glued into the sweater somehow. Uh, okay, um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm yeah, stuck with that one. <laughs> yeah, zip repairs are uh, interesting when you talk about repairing, though, when we're looking at repairing a zip. From a circular aspect, what we do is we we take a zip out of another item of clothing. So some of those, it comes back to the instructor uniforms. When we're patching over the instructor uniforms, we'll take one of the uniforms and use that to create the patches mm. so that we're not creating, we're not using any more fabric, we're not using any more materials, um, the same if we're replacing a zip, we'll then take the zip out of that jacket that we've cut up for patching and we'll use that zip in a in a repair. And we've kind of found that, because I think if you went to a repair shop, your, your automatic response is to buy the Velcro as a repair shop or to buy the zip so that the zip mm. that's going in is, is brand new. But our response is to just use all the materials we have in our community yeah, um, and use them to fix and repair stuff. And it, it works fine. The customers don't mind at all. Mm. That sounds sounds like a good policy and I think you've also mentioned that you um, help children who are kind of you know growing rapidly and and burning through their outdoor clothing at a rate or not so you've got a swap rail yeah outside the front of the store we have a swap rail Um, it's one of my favorite parts of the the sort of space because it, it kind of just changes weekly I have very little interaction with it because I'll be working inside the shop space and it's literally swap or take something off. I mean, you don't have to swap. You just take something if you need it. Um, and that sort of just changes regularly. And there's some amazing bits and pieces on there. And it's kind of important again here because we ski for five months a year. Uh, as a child, when you get to ski in seven months' time, there's a big chance that you're not going to fit that ski boot or that uh, bit of outerwear. So it's just a way of trying to help our community just share. I mean, that this kind of thing is done on groups on Facebook and stuff, but it does it, it does seem to work a little bit better if you've got a physical space where people can just come and easily collect and drop off. Mm. Um, just by providing that service, it seems to make the whole thing a little bit smoother. Yeah, um, and I think it's less, you know, the, the the whole thing around reuse, there can still be a little bit of a stigma around it. Um, and, um, yeah, I think kind of having things set out on a, on a rail just as they would be if they were new, that sort of normalizes it, doesn't it? Rather than having to make a special trip to somebody's house and then be, be perhaps embarrassed if, um, you know, either it doesn't quite fit or, um, you know, you thought it was going to be in really good nick and actually it's, you know, it's not as described and when you've had to go personally and, collect that thing the whole exchange can become a bit awkward sometimes yeah no i really agree on that yeah i definitely agree and that's we've actually focused on that a bit when we set the shop space up so i'd say eight times out of ten when people walk in they have no idea that it's secondhand 
So, like, for example, some of those ski jackets we received from the ski schools are excess stock, so they've never, ever been skied in, so they've got mm. tags on. Um, when you walk in, we've made sure they display everything and, and, and put everything out on the racks in a, in a sense that you would sort of in a normal shop. So we're kind of making sure the products look look really smart, and and that's gone a long way to to helping people make that decision to buy secondhand. I think because it does mm. look really smart, it looks clean, it looks like you're buying a new product. You're having you're having exactly the same shopping experience as you would do, say, if you walked into Primark. Um, but on top of that, you shouldn't be feeling any guilt, really. <laughs> Yeah, um, and maybe just the opposite. So what, what kind of reactions are you getting from people? Have you had lots of repeat customers and, and what kind oh, of yeah. things are they saying? Yeah, yeah, loads of repeat customers. It's really nice in the store because it's it's been operating all the way through lockdown and COVID and I've got a lot of um, older French people in the village pop in and discuss secondhand, buy secondhand. Um, the French as a society... They tend to buy new and look for really, really well made. So you'll often see if you if you're on the ski hill here and there's someone skiing in a eighties one piece ski suit, they'll they'll be French probably the majority of the times. If there's someone skiing in this season's gear, they'll be English or American. And that and that's this different sort of culture. So amongst the French, it's taken a little bit of time for them to click on to the fact that they can get quality secondhand. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they tend, like I said, they tend to buy and keep for like a long, long time. But that's what we yeah. want people to do, anyway, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, yeah, like really French. interesting that different culture, though. It'd be it'd be really interesting to unpick what the you know is that a values driven thing? Is it just a perception that if you're going to be passionate about a pastime or something, you should invest in really good quality gear and then you kind of become emotionally attached to it but it'd just be interesting to mm. know more I about that an, i would think there's an aspect aspect of marketing and advertisement involved in that and whether we have the same level of marketing we probably do now but whether there's been the same level of marketing and advertising within the french community as in, in the same way as it's been in the uk um, I think that play into. It. I mean, the French have taken taken a lot of interest in circular models, even at a governmental level. Mm. Um, yeah, we've had like a citizens bureau, uh, sort of running for like two years. There's been about two hundred people have been selected at random, and they've been able to put policies forward to the government. Um, certain ones like we're now no longer allowed to have outdoor heaters. Um, mm. There's an environmental one that's been pushed through, but on a circular sort of shopping sort of laws that are coming in this January. I still need to check if it's definitely happening, but we, two years ago in France, you're no longer allowed to dispose or incinerate new clothing. So that happens all around the world when brands have excess stock and they don't want to flood the market with this excess stock. They either burn it or dispose of it in landfill. Um, you can no longer do that in France. And then this year, in the, I don't, I don't think it's just in the outdoor world. I think it's in all retail. When you retail a product, when you sell a product, you own that product at end of life. So you need to find a solution at end of life. As a brand, as a manufacturer, or as a distributor, you need to go and find the solution for that product. That might be like working with a brand, like an organisation like ours, for example. It might be 
retrieving that material and sending it back somewhere to be recycled and remade into another garment. Um, but yeah, the French are definitely... Mm, that sounds really powerful. It's, you know, um, a, a big game changer. My, my understanding with that as well was that the, when they spoke to the outdoor industry, they thought this would be a really difficult sort of idea to push through. But the outdoor industry has gone, no, we need this because we need the environment to continue right. operating it. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, of course, there's a, there's much more of a um, a linkage there in people's minds, isn't there, about, um, you know, it's great to have all this this new stuff, but there's a big cost, and that's going to undermine our sort of um, our whole business and, and um, reason for being. So, yeah. Gavin, over the, the time that you've been developing One Tree at a Time, what have you struggled with? I was thinking about this last couple of weeks and it's a difficult question but what what we kind of do when an item comes into the shop is we measure it in its material value so when it comes into community space from from the very start I, have, I haven't thought about profit or margins or what money we need to make and to keep operating what I've thought about is what is the best solution for that material and so I feel like we're kind of operating a different system, but within the current capitalist system. And that makes things slightly more tricky because ultimately we've still got to be able to fund the space. Mm. Um, so a garment might come in and we might decide that actually the, that garment is going to get the most use if we donate it, if we patch over that logo and we donate it to a charity and they're going to take people into outdoors, for example, that might be the best solution for that garment. That's not going to make us any money along the way. Like, it's, in fact, if we're employing someone to patch, it's going to cost us. But we're using some of our community's money to then go and help another community, and it just it's, it's kind of a different way of looking at at business. And when you're trying to operate like that in a system that is all about profit, it, it's quite difficult. And the the only di- the difficulty is is that I've worked on this for nearly three years now. Um, I've never paid myself a penny yet. I've not been paid at all. Other people are, like I said, the the people who do the fixing. Um, we employed someone to work in the store this summer, um, so other people have been paid. But without my time, and I am in a fortunate position to be able to give that time, um, if I hadn't been able to give that, we wouldn't be where we are. Mm. And I guess as part of these new extender producer responsibility laws that you were talking about earlier, then there might be a way to get the companies that are um, able to comply with those regulations by donating things to you um, to pay as well because they would have had to pay to send it to landfill or yeah. incineration. So yeah. so maybe maybe those are the kind of regulations that will start to level the playing field and yeah, create, that... create more of an income for finding ways to get, you know, get another life for every every product that comes onto the market. Yeah, that's true. That that is an avenue that we already do have some support from from a couple of brands, and that, this is maybe like more of a, a question about you, Catherine. But my as I'm getting further and further through this project, what I'm realizing, and I, I did notice before, but it's become more evident, is that reuse is just the most important part of this process, and we already have enough product that to reuse it's like we've got an entire store full of amazing looking 
products that we do sell for a reduced price, but we're selling for 150, 200 euros. We're not, we're not doing this cheaply. We're using the money to go back into our community. And we have all this material and fabric in our space. So I don't want to become an organization that allows brands to continue making stuff because we're the solution at mm. the end of that. I don't mm. want to be a sticking plaster. Actually, I feel like this is what's kind of dawning on me. And it's something that we've started to do um, a little bit more now, which is create a, a sort of secondhand brand to give give products a bit more of a um, an appeal to people. But we just have enough products, so I don't want to end up. And I don't know. You, you obviously you know so much more about me than uh, than me about the circular economy. You you studied it and read it a lot more. And I I've approached this very much from a, a a point of just reading about stuff on the internet and trying to put stuff into into action. And what's your what's your feeling on that? It just it just we just have enough kit. Yeah, no, I think you. I think you're absolutely right. And you posted something on LinkedIn the other day um, that I probably need to go back to because there was a really fantastic phrase about you know we've already got enough outdoor stuff yeah. in in the world. So I think it, you know, that reuse is really important, but so also is the French philosophy that you described of buying stuff that's going to last in the first place. You know, every time something has to be passed on to be reused, um, you know, there's there's another transaction taking place. I guess there's a risk of a little bit less emotional attachment to the garment because, you know, you, you didn't spend time researching what you were going to buy or whatever it was. Okay. Um, so making things that, that do last for longer, and I guess it comes back to, you know, the, the, the root of the problem is what you said at the beginning about the brands introducing new colours every year so that it's obvious whether this is this year's clothing or not. It's dawning on me that we all have to be part of the solution. We have to be creating the market for these products that last longer. We have to be making a fuss when something isn't repairable or doesn't last as long as it could have done Um, and making it really clear to the brands that this isn't what we want. Um, you know, we've we've got to we've got to be able to push the the super tanker a bit and and turn it in the right direction. So I don't know I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I think what you said is really interesting there because it just ring a bell with me really. Like owning all that stuff or all the things you described as well is hassle. Like mm. owning more stuff is more hassle. Having a washing machine that breaks every five years is more hassle. Like none of it is any better for me like none of it's adding value to my life like if i have to i don't know or if, I, if i'm that ski school and i've got to change my uniform every two years because the brand is well it's costing me money it's costing me needless expenses that i, I just wouldn't need to make if you were keeping the mm. same product or i could send that product back and get it re-waterproof for example i could get it serviced and yeah i i just don't want us to become that sort of social enterprise not for profit that helps plaster over the cracks. I think that's really important. And so I do want to take uniform and repurpose as much material and much fabric as I can, but also, and this is what I'd said on that thread is we have enough products in our communities, just in the wrong wardrobes. Mm. Like that's the honest truth. It's in the wrong wardrobe. It's in the wrong storeroom. Like, so we need a community where we can share that stuff. Um, where we can fix that stuff, where we don't need to keep adding to that stuff. Yeah, absolutely uh, right. 
And it's, and this is the thing, isn't it? If if stuff's designed to last in the first place, then all of that reuse and repair um, becomes easier and easier because people know that you know. Well, this might have a the zip might not work properly now, but I know I can get that fixed. Um, yeah. And so you're not going to be put off having something that's that's secondhand. With with um, I think we're fortunate as well with ski gear because it is built to last. Like it's you couldn't make a really bad piece of ski gear because like it wouldn't it wouldn't hold up to the weather and stuff. So it is kind of better made than you might you might think. So that plays into our hands a little bit when we get that material. It's of a better quality that we can repair it and resell it for a value that helps mm. support us. Um, you know, if we were receiving one euro polyester t-shirts, I I have no solution to that. No. I can't put it on a rail and sell it to someone else for a euro. I can't, you know, it doesn't even, there's no one that really wants that product. It's kind of finished. Yeah. So um, if you were talking to somebody else, you know, reflecting back on your three years of, getting this going and thinking about what works and what doesn't work and trying to work within the capitalist system whilst rejecting quite a few of those <laughs> capitalist values. What, what lessons learned would you share with somebody else thinking of taking their business in a more circular direction? Um, I think that, I think it's probably been said a lot that the first step is probably the hardest. And, and once you, you make that step to trying to change your business or move in a different direction the other bits soon start to fall into place i think if you set yourself a very clear clear set of values to begin with um like my one of my clear clear values at the store is that we don't create anything as in we could have uh, it would have been a lot easier for us to order up logoed badges with what with one tree written on it um, they would have been made out of nylon and my from the very start I was like we're not doing that because that's going to be on the planet long after I am and that's not not what I want to do so we want to have clear values from the start we don't create anything like we just have to use what's already within our store and then that helps feed into ideas it helps people that are working with the organization understand exactly what we're trying to achieve and then they go looking for solutions and they come back you know the, the seamstresses the people that I'm working with we will bounce ideas around and loads of different solutions come back we're we're now starting to manufacture some project products in our community um and so yeah i think if you make the first step which is seems like it's hard but once you've done it you're on that way you've committed to something you can't really go back on your commitment um and then just draw up a really good set of values mm. that everyone who in, in works with you or interacts with your organization has a clear understanding of, of what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I think that's a great tip. And there's lots of research showing that having constraints helps people be more imaginative and creative and, and innovative. Um, and that's what we need, isn't it, for business to realize that we, we do have constraints. It's a, it's a finite world with finite resources and there's nowhere really to dump our waste and pollution. So we should all be operating as if we're in a self-contained system and, and th thinking of barriers like, you know, boundaries like that. Mm. We've, we've constrained ourselves so specifically there by saying we're not going to create anything, we're only going to use this, um, that it's made us go down loads of different avenues. Like, for example, we have been test like we use the community space to test stuff so we have run a um a kind of like like a rental 
sort of subscription service and I've just done it with a few friends to test out what sort of products they would need. So rather than everyone owning everything you need for bike gear, everything you need for skiing, everything you need for ski touring, you just come and pay a monthly subscription and you will come and take that stuff from the store. Um, it means that we own it and we're the people that can repair it, we can service it, we can look after it. So when it comes back, if you've ripped it, we're absolutely we're actually not that bothered. We'll, we'll just fix it and we can get it back out again. So we've been testing stuff like that. And we've only, you know, by putting those really strict restrictions on ourselves, we have to get creative and come up with ideas of how can we use this waste. And that, that idea came from me being in that shop and looking around and going, there's all this stuff. Like, it doesn't want to be on the shop wall. It wants to be out in the mountain. It wants to be on some adventure somewhere it doesn't want to be here and that's forcing us into into ideas like that i think there's a really good space for people who are interested in getting into this field i think it's a really good time to just just give it a go and see where it takes you yeah definitely and i think you're right you know startups can really um innovate and and um you know disrupt the the super yeah. tankers and uh yeah because they're they're just um fiddling about really with with random acts of circularity as i think patagonia once said so gavin yeah. is there anybody that you'd recommend as a future guest for the circular economy podcast yeah sure there's a, a guy called dan lawson um he's based in the uk and runs an organization called rerun clothing uh he's a ultra marathon runner by by trade uh but his organization focuses on getting as much lifetime out of running gear as possible really interesting they've been doing loads and loads of work on uh, finishes finisher jerseys so you know when you complete a marathon like i've done a few marathons you get a t-shirt that you never end up wearing again because we've all got running t-shirts we don't need it um so he's done a lot of work on that and then more recently he has done a hell of a lot of work around trainers um one of the stats on the front page of the website is that the average trainer is worn for four to six months and that it actually takes 11,994 months before that will start to decompose in landfill. Wow. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Right, well, I'll, I'll um, get in touch with, with Dan. That sounds like it to be a fascinating interview. Thank you. So, Gavin, how can people find out more about you and One Tree at a Time and get in touch? Uh, yeah, so our website is www.onetreeattime.fr. Um, we're also on Instagram and Facebook um, and LinkedIn where you can find out lots of info about the sort of things that we're trying to put into action and the, the changes that we're making. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And good luck with all the, um, the next set of, of projects that you've got in the, uh, in the pipeline. Um, look forward to following you on LinkedIn and seeing more about that. And uh, yeah, yeah keep, keeping, um, keeping circularity front of mind for everybody yeah. in Courchevel. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on, Kevin. I'd just like to say keep commenting on posts and keep the conversation going on LinkedIn because it's of massive value. Good uh, stuff. Some of the conversations we've had in the last week that I've seen on various posts that we've both, both conversed on is really is really good. It's really good for getting the brain going. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think, um, yeah, people are starting to get more challenging on LinkedIn with, you know, mm. unpicking things that appear to be perhaps circular or more sustainable but when you think it through in terms of the bigger system um mm. you know then it it might not be and i think everybody pushing the bar higher particularly for the big brands is you know it's it's one way that we can all influence things isn't it we, like i said we have to be the ones creating the market and that means calling out the 
the the stuff that's not really solving the problem and encouraging um you know other innovations that that are making a, a real difference yeah no i totally agree and i think again that sort of comes back to that strict guideline that we put in space that we will not make anything that then puts us in a position where the bigger wider industry can't do anything about what what we're doing in a sense they can't you know what we're doing is on is the solution it's the right way to go mm. and the industry is going to have to adapt because they can't find another way around that sort of that model yeah um, so i think it doesn't create a lot of leverage and people like yeah i agree people are really starting to challenge brands and say that sounds good but is it really good yeah definitely i can't remember who who i've borrowed this from it might have been al gramo but be part of the solution not the pollution <laughs> that's brilliant <laughs> stuff well thank you very much gavin and um yeah look forward to your next post on linkedin to see what one tree at a time is doing next thanks a lot <laughs> thanks Catherine. bye i was struck by gavin's deep commitment to the local community finding ways to create value and help connect people i guess i shouldn't have been shocked to find out how much needless waste is created by the ski wear and outdoor brands fixation with promoting the latest fashion color or slightly better product. Every sector seems to be adopting the fast fashion business model of emotional obsolescence. It was interesting to hear Gavin talk about cultural differences. The typical French approach is to buy good quality stuff and keep it. Whereas in the UK, we're persuaded to buy the latest stuff and swap it for for new every year or so. That reminds me of Sandra Goldmark, who wrote Fixation, How to Have Stuff Without Breaking the Planet. When I spoke to Sandra back in episode 41, she encouraged us all to have good stuff, not too much, mostly reclaimed, care for it, pass it on. But of course, we need to remember how powerful the marketing is and how embedded it is in our everyday lives and culture. For the ski resorts, that includes sponsorship, ski schools earning fees to promote the brands and much more. There's so much potential to do things differently and better. And it's really encouraging that people are shifting their perceptions and no longer want to be part of a wasteful, destructive system built on exploitation of resources, nature and even people. Gavin and I have kept in touch since recording the podcast and he's developing some exciting concepts to expand the One Tree approach by connecting with other people in the outdoor gear space. I reckon I'll be asking Gavin if we can do an update before too long. So that's it for another episode of the Circular Economy podcast. As always, if you like this episode, please tell others about it. Thank you to our guest this week, Gavin Fernie-Jones, founder of One Tree at a Time. You can find out more and follow Gavin and One Tree at a Time on social media. You can check out all the links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. Thanks to Charlotte Morley of The Little Loop for making this episode possible. And thank you for listening. And by the way, Charlotte Morley was featured on the BBC Dragons Den series in the UK a couple of weeks ago. Two Dragons invested in Charlotte's children's wear rental and subscription company. And several Dragons, along with me, were in tears. You can hear Charlotte's story in episode 65.
If you want to find episodes on a particular circular economy strategy, or for a market sector, or specific countries, check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at www.circulareconomypodcast.com. And every episode includes an interview transcript. Don't forget that you can help make the circular economy happen too, with the choices you make at work and in your everyday life. Buying pre-used, keeping what you have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. And you can help spread the word. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one and two or buy a copy of my award winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. The book takes you through the concepts and practicalities with lots of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice and circular economy resources at www.rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. Thanks so much for listening to the end. And if you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe. And we'll see you next time.